Well, what's the next level of abstraction after that? It would be to get further away from the operating system. And both containers and serverless are steps in that direction in different ways. So in the case of containers, we want to be able to provide an environment for our application that's really well-defined. And that's what containers do. They give each application uh, an environment that's very predictable, that is the same no matter where it's running, uh, that has isolation from other things happening on that same virtual machine, thus leading us to higher capacity. Well, hey, my name is Jeff DeVerter, and I'm the CTO for the Solutions and Services Group here at Rackspace. Now, the voice you just heard was Tolga Tarhan, who was the CTO for Anika before Rackspace bought them. Now he leads the entire AWS team here at Rackspace. Now, in this episode, we talk about containers and other serverless technologies, but what our conversation actually centers around is that to really be able to get the most out of these sorts of corporate changes, it just can't be a technology swap. To be able to truly transform your organization effectively, you have to impact the people, the processes, and the technology. Now, transformation like that really is the enabler for future innovations that will help your organization move quicker into the future. Now, before I give too much away and jump into the full episode, I want to encourage you to stick around after the conversation for some important information and a preview of the next episode. And lastly, I want to thank you for downloading and listening to this inaugural episode of my podcast, Cloud Talk. All right, so let's jump into the first episode. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Deverter. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Deverter, CTO over here at Rackspace. And, uh, and welcome to Cloud Talk. Glad that you have taken the second to, to listen in. And today's conversation is going to be all about containers and where they fit in the grand scheme of your enterprise architecture. Now, I'm joined today by Tolga Tarhan. Tolga, welcome. Glad that you're here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Now let's get some background on who you are and why you are, in this case, an authority in serverless and in containers. I was the CTO of Onica that Rackspace acquired back about six months ago. And uh, in that capacity, and, and currently as well, have been pushing for cloud-native adoption. And so as customers look to migrate and adopt the cloud, one of our big pushes has been to do that in a way that embraces what's unique about the cloud. And so this is kind of a world I've lived in for the past seven, eight years. That's excellent. So so just kind of as a preface then, when we think about things that are unique about the cloud and why it's different necessarily than saying, hey, here's my pet VM and now let's put that VM out in a, in a cloud and that's pretty exciting. And it is exciting in some cases, but what makes the cloud, give me a couple attributes of the cloud that make it unique and different. Yeah, so look, the simplistic view of the cloud is that it's a data center. And when you think about it in that way, it's like having a data center with no address. And if you just do that, is that really beneficial to you? When you wanna, what you want to do is actually realize that it's a unique place, that this elastic computing infrastructure, that the programmatic ways in which you can sort of use APIs to do things that used to require someone to go plug a cable in, th those kinds of things kind of make it necessary to have a different approach. And if you take that different approach, and this involves sort of people, process, technology changes, but if you do that, then you get this kind of promised land of the cloud with totally elastic scaling, which is cost-effective, with better reliability, 
um, with sort of automated deployments and faster time to market. So we want to look at it as this is a new way to approach technology and embracing the new way brings a lot more value than just going to the cloud as a data center. That's awesome. So one of the things that that I've said a lot to customers over the years is in the move to the cloud, it's not like the old days where it was like VMware 2 to VMware 3 or this physical server to that physical server. The thing that you had to think about every couple of three, four years. But the, the move to the cloud is not just a, a real estate change, but it's a process change. It's a methodology change. And so what are a few of the things, as you think about that, that a company has to change the way that they think in order to truly adopt this, you know, this, this elastic environment that you're talking about? Yeah, you know, one of the first changes and probably the most difficult change is probably a change in org structure. In a lot of cases, we see customers have very fragmented, very segmented, very functional org structures, but that doesn't lend itself well to a model where the infrastructure is deployed as code. Uh, when you're defining your infrastructure, your load balancers, your instances, your network stack as definitions in a configuration file that you then deploy, that doesn't lend itself really well to like a model where developers develop and IT professionals deploy. It lends itself much better to a cross-functional team where all that's being done in a single team, all kind of versioned and source controlled together. And so the, the first step to this journey is really kind of a DevOps and agile transformation that should take place. Got it. And that's, you know, it's important you kind of, you call that out. It gives greater detail to what you said before. And that is when you talk about people, process, and technology, you know, we so often think about IT as truly just, well, let's, you know, we, we have to solve for a patch. We have to solve for an upgrade. We have to solve for a new version, as opposed to, we need to think about this thing from business end all the way down into the bits and bytes and how it all orchestrates and work together. Exactly. I think when doing that is what is the enabler of future innovation. So once you'd make the hard sort of changes in people and process and technology, then the benefit is you move quicker in the future. You deploy um, new updates every day or every week as opposed to twice a year. That means faster time to market. That means better customer experiences. And ultimately, we hope it means you know revenue and customer growth. And so this is not all about cost savings. It is also about that forward-looking opportunity. Well, and that's cool because as you think about about what you just described, you know, in the old days, you go back into the into the 1990s or even the early 2000s, you know, IT was about they managed their little bucket and their little world, and they would talk to the business when they had to talk to the business. And if the business came knocking on their door looking for a solution, a lot of times they had something in their hand. They say, "Hey, can I, can I have one of these, please?" And then IT would go off to vet it, and they would make sure it's the right thing, which you know, has some value. And it was this weird sort of, sir, may I have, and then oh, I, I, I will bless you with that thing, as opposed to this world that we live in now where everything is working in concert, ideally. And what happens as they adopt newer technology is they're also adopting new work methodologies so that they can work closer together. And I think that that one of the technologies that really has helped drive this concept is the concept of, of containers. Now, Kubernetes was released in, in 2014, it has arguably won the race of which orchestration engine is going to win. And uh, you know, about 40% of enterprise companies today are deploying Kubernetes, not into a test environment, but into production. And 71% of Fortune 100 companies use it as their main container orchestration tool. But before we go too deep into all of that, there's still maybe a couple of folks who, who are a little fuzzy on containers. So in the grand scheme of all things not a VM in technology, you know, in 30 or 60 seconds or less, what's a container? Uh, why is it important? 
you know, what's its role or what's its dichotomy as it relates to serverless? If you think about where we started, like, you know, in, in the year 2000, we would have virtual, we would have physical machines in data centers, right? And that was like the norm. And then yeah. fast forward like six, seven, eight years later, the norm was virtual machines on those physical machines in our data centers. And then fast forward to like 2010, 11, 12, the norm was becoming, or, or the up and coming norm was becoming VMs in the cloud. So we took the VM sort of on-premise model and said, you know what, we don't care about the physical hardware. We're going to abstract ourselves away from the hardware. Well, what's the next level of abstraction after that? It would be to get further away from the operating system. And both containers and serverless are steps in that direction in different mm -hmm. ways. So in the case of containers, we want to be able to provide an environment for our application that's really well-defined. We don't want to have to worry about what version of certain libraries might be installed on the system. We don't want to worry about uh, dependencies on other applications or conflicts with other applications on a system. Mm -hmm. And again, in the last, I would say, decade, the way we've addressed that is we have basically put a single application on each VM. But that's, that's not the most efficient use of VMs. And so what we're looking at now is can we put more than one application on a VM using the same kernel, the same sort of instance, but isolate them from each other in a way that preserves that kind of feeling of one application per VM. And that's what containers do. They give each application uh, an environment that's very predictable, that is the same no matter where it's running, and that doesn't, uh, that has isolation rather from other things happening on that same virtual machine, thus leading us to higher capacity. Yeah, so greater density into those the, and util, resource utilization. So, so then to to kind of again tease at the differences now between serverless as we would know it running in AWS or Azure or Google as these services or a container. The container then is a place for me to put a single application or an aspect of the application, but still be able to control it as its own thing, both in where it runs as also how it runs. But then when you think about a serverless environment, serverless is going to be, uh, as it would relate to an offering inside of AWS, for instance, is, is a technology that is going to handle automation, it's going to handle where it runs, it's going to handle the storage and so forth, but it's going to be bound specific to that cloud or to that, that resource set. Yeah, I mean, I think that right now serverless is very much... Um you know, sort of a per hyperscaler model. It's it's not, there's not a good abstraction across hyperscalers. I suspect that's a short-term problem. I would look at the difference between the two more as in containers, you are still running a full application. It still has a full life cycle and you decide when it runs and when it scales up and when it scales down. And you're still aware of the fact that, hey, there is a application that runs on top of an operating system. When you get to serverless, it's kind of one layer even deeper of abstraction where you don't even think about the operating system. You don't think about what instance or scaling up or down. It's just in response to an event, some code runs. And so the right, only right. code you're writing is the code that runs in response to an event, not any of the sort of infrastructure-oriented code. And while I kind of personally think of serverless as the, the, the sort of more cloud-native approach, it's not right for every application. Some applications mm -hmm. go to containers and stay there because their model fits better. 
you know, this kind of brings out the point that that it's not like you have to choose, I'm going to go only serverless as it relates to something inside of Azure, or I'm only going to go to use containers for this application over there. And in my opinion, what you're looking for is, is we're looking to break down either existing monolithic applications, or as we think about writing applications to decide, well, this aspect of this application really lends itself well to a container, but yet we're going to control the event triggers around it and run them in a serverless world and use those in concert where, the, where they, they fit best. Yeah, you make actually a, a really good point here that even within one application, you don't need to choose one or the other. And in fact, it's very likely that as you migrate existing applications or as you break up existing monoliths, containers are going to be the more obvious path. It's going to be a lot less effort all you have to do is kind of work around the edges of your application as opposed to sort of like major surgery on the application. But let's say that as you then build new features, you create a new microservice. Well, there's no reason that new microservice might not be a great target for serverless. Mm-hmm. And given that we given that we basically use entirely web-based APIs now to communicate between services in, in almost every case, it shouldn't really matter to any other part of your system that one service is in serverless and that 10 others are in containers. In fact, that's that to me is proof of maturity in your approach to microservices, that you could yeah. do that without breaking your application. Well, and so many companies also think about, well, they're worried about, about vendor lock-in. And so, you know, when, and meaning when they think about moving to a hyperscaler, they think, well, I, I don't want to, you know, go use these advanced capabilities here, uh, meaning, you know, that they're, or, container orchestration engine or their serverless capabilities because because then I'm locked in and if they raise the price or I get mad at them there's no I can't move but but I and so what they're ultimately looking for is portability and unfortunately portability oftentimes drives them towards the lowest common denominator from from a technology perspective and most companies then would only think well I'm just going to be using network storage and VMs but containers actually gives them a level of portability but I think that that actually adopting a serverless um, architecture on top of containers creates a super interesting way to break up that portability. You might use um, a serverless orchestration engine that's running, you know, in one cloud, but your containers are running in another for different reasons. Whether it's I want to diversify my estate, I want this to run across multiple clouds, or I may need regional accessibility for some aspect of that as well. What are your thoughts there? You're right that that portability has become a really hot topic. And I actually wrote an article about this um, that was published in Forbes recently about, hey, when to choose multi-cloud and what's the value of portability. And so on sort of at a, at a high level, I would say, look, we should not use portability as a way to do cost arbitrage. I think, I think if you're approaching application portability because you want leverage over pricing from the hyperscalers, I think very few customers, maybe you know, you could count them on on one hand, hmm. have enough scale to to actually impact the hyperscalers' negotiating position. They, for the most part, have discount programs that are well understood, that are consistent, and threatening to take a workload, um, you know, from one to the other. I think is not a great negotiating tactic anyway. Having right. said that, portability makes sense on, on a number of other cases. It makes sense if your end customers might want you to operate your service in the same cloud as them. And in that case, you may need to deploy a version of your service on all the different hyperscalers. That's that's one thing we're seeing more and more of. Or well and that and that applies super well to to VARs, you know, somebody who's going to create software that software as a service type of an offering and then their ability to deploy it across all clouds, a container becomes a great way to do that. 
Exactly right. I think that VARs are going to change their software distribution mechanism in, um, over time to be primarily container-based. Because imagine a world in which there are no install instructions, there are no prerequisites, there are no you know things you must go configure before you can install the application. It's more just like, here's a container image, it's already fully baked, and you can deploy this image in any hyperscaler or on-prem or in a private cloud. That That's uh, really valuable for VARs, and I think we'll see them go that way. I think we'll also see SaaS vendors go that way as well. I think you've got some enterprises that are standardizing on one cloud, and they'd prefer to see their SaaS vendors in the same cloud with them. As we think about containers adopting them across this you know, ubiquitous way to go across multiple hyperscalers, but then we start to bake in serverless, things start to get interestingly complex. And com- there's always been complexity. You, you look at these big monoliths that people are finding ways to, to deconstruct and move elsewhere. That had, of course, a huge amount of complexity, but I think what what gave enterprises comfort is that they could put their arms around that complexity. They controlled that complexity. But when you start spreading it across these different services in areas that they can't necessarily touch and they can't necessarily control, it creates uncertainty, and and then that's a huge piece of, of complexity. What are some of the other aspects as you think about the complexity that maybe maybe dissuading people from adopting this type of, of a methodology? I think there's a, there's a probably a psychology case study we could do on this because <laughs> it's so simple it has become complex. And what I mean by that is, in the for example AWS console, you can go to Lambda, which is their serverless product, and you can write your first hello world in like three minutes. The mm. problem is that simplified approach makes it look like, hey, how am I going to scale this out to my dev team of hundreds of people? and my mature change control processes, and my need to promote between environments. And there's a big gap between the hello world, do it in the web console, and the here is a fully baked sort of DevOps integrated process where I commit code and things happen, and I've got organized ways to um, deploy new services, and I've got a standard way in which I express my infrastructure requirements, and whether that's Terraform or CloudFormation or, or something else like that. And so I think once you get past that first hurdle and you see your first successful serverless project, then it all come, makes sense. Then it's like, okay, I see. Here's how I structure a code base, and here's how it's versioned, and here's how it works. But I think that that's, that leap from the sort of console to that is hard to make for most people. That's, that's really true. And doesn't that also then start to show, to show to IT specifically how they can start to work closer with the business? In fact, even the business getting involved in, in the testing process more, more directly and in the promotion process. That's right. So, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about in containers is that because they re- represent the entire environment, they represent a full definition of the application if you, if you do it right. Mm-hmm. You can deploy them really easily. So deploying a test environment doesn't become like a major IT project. If everything is cloud native in the way we've talked about it, any developer or frankly, even a business user could probably push a button and launch a new test environment. And this is another good sort of litmus test for how well have you done in, in becoming more cloud native. And so that enables very different models of testing and very different models of um, engaging with the business. Right, and engaging with the business. And, and again, we, we're talking about testing. We've been talking about technology. So we think, oh, we got to test our test our code. But it's not just that. It's testing the business rules. It's testing the data. What does the data now do inside of this environment? So now inside of the business, they can deploy a test environment, front load a new set, a new data set into that. And 
check behavior, one, of the code? And then two, do the business rules still apply? Does the data still apply? Those sorts of things. Very powerful. Yeah, exactly. And, and you could do all that with VMs, by the way. And people have been doing that with VMs by you know, orchestrating every aspect of the deployment. So you deploy some Terraform or some CloudFormation and up comes an environment and the instances auto-provision their applications. It's all possible with VMs, but it is so much simpler with containers and the tooling is built around the concept. And this whole ephemeral instance idea is so natural in containers that I think it just advances the the maturity much, much more quickly. Well, that and it makes it so much more accessible because when you think about having the wherewithal from an infrastructure perspective to be able to spin up some of these large environments to do the type of testing you know, I mentioned before, it was a bit of resources to have that that amount of, of capability kind of sitting, sitting idly by waiting waiting for a test run as opposed to a lightweight container environment that could could spin up kind of literally anywhere, even on their desktop. Exactly right. In fact, you desktop's a good point. So as you advance in containers or serverless to more mature processes, you've got to give developers back that ability to do work locally. That, that's what they've been doing for decades. And yep. waiting to deploy to the cloud to test the 10 lines of code you just wrote is super frustrating. Right. So so let's just pivot just a second. Now, we, we've as we think about containers and that the work that happens between containers and the serverless world, because we should think about them together. It's a great way to mature. And we think about Kubernetes having sort of won that orchestration space from a container perspective. You know, we think about how the serverless world works together from a mesh perspective. You know, the jury's still out a little there. So, so first of all, what does mesh mean in the context of serverless? And then, you know, we'll talk about who some of the front runners are there. Sure. So, yeah. So the idea of a, of a service mesh is to kind of take four, four challenges with microservices and, and bring them together into a unified solution. And the four challenges are service discovery. So how does one service find another service it depends on? Routing and load balancing would be the second one. How do you sort of, how do I know which instance of a service to send a message to and how do I balance that load? Then you have sort of security and service identity. So how does one service authenticate itself to another service in a way that doesn't assume the network layer is trusted. And then the final one is sort of metrics and analytics, being able to um, gather metrics that have insight across the 10 microservices that might be involved in one request. Great way to break that down. And so while there, while there, aren't necess- there isn't necessarily a single you know, vendor or, or, or company that's winning in that space from how that, that happens, there are a couple of, of leaders. HashiCorp's got some stuff out there. STO's got some out there. Any that, that ring true for you or you've seen some good examples with? No, I mean, I think you know, Amazon has their, has their app mesh product. That's one option. You've, you do have Istio, as you said, that was developed by Lyft and has a lot of industry backing behind it. And you have Linkerd, which is a CNCF project, which is the same foundation that runs Kubernetes as a project. And so I think, I think those are all worth looking at. Unlike um, the container space or where Kubernetes has clearly emerged as a leader, I'm less convinced that we've seen that here. Agreed. Well, you brought up you know what Amazon is doing from a container perspective, talking about their mesh capabilities. But let's talk about Bottle Rocket really quick because that's been an interesting thing that's in preview right now. Tell us, you know, it's it's a, a Linux OS that's just meant to run containers. It's just got the core of what it's got. Do you have any experience with it, or or can tell us a little bit more about Bottle Rocket? Yeah, I, I haven't gotten to get hands on with it yet. Um, I, I would very much like to, but but Bottle Rocket essentially is yeah that kind of stripped down minimal operating system distribution 
that was built for containers. And so it doesn't, it assumes that there's nothing running on the instance but the agents that manage containers and the containers themselves. Like the other recent Amazon, sort of Amazon Linux releases, it comes with a guaranteed period of support where Amazon will continue to provide updates to the image. And it integrates really well with Amazon's container management products to, to kind of make this more seamless. If you think about it, you don't really want to even think about the operating system when you're deploying Kubernetes. So why not give you an operating system that doesn't need to be considered? That's fantastic. Good stuff. Well, containers, uh, obviously uh, a huge aspect of a company's move to the cloud uh, and just really change in methodology. You know, we can say move to the cloud, but the reality is it's just change in methodology because as you mentioned before, containers run quite well on a desktop. Now to do it at scale, you need you need a little more muscle behind it, but fascinating way that it's being used. So as we start to wrap this up, um, I do want to chat a little bit. We're recording this right now in a time where everybody does everything from home. COVID-19 is, you know, working its way through the world. And just as all things from a technology perspective are changing the way business runs, technology has really had a chance to stand up in this time where we're all locked at home. Um, and I just thought maybe I'd ask you, what ways have you seen technology really assist during this time, so, you know, some some positive aspects there. Yeah, I mean, clearly the connectedness that we have with all the video conferencing has been the most notable thing. So if we think about this same incident 10 years ago, I think there would be a much deeper sense of isolation for people that they would, you know, there was obviously we had video conferencing 10 years ago, but it was more limited to sort of enterprises and many cases had specialized gear involved. You look now and everyone's got the bandwidth, everyone's got the cameras at home, everyone's got, this is like an easy thing to hop on. And and there's a dozen different tools and a bunch of those vendors have come out and done really good things for the world by allowing educational institutions and nonprofits and others to, to use these video conferencing platforms to keep people connected. I mean, just a few minutes ago, my own daughter was on a Zoom with her teacher. That's an incredible thing that I don't think anyone would have thought of or maybe would have thought of it, but wouldn't have imagined it being real 10 years ago. Oh, it's so true. I, I, my son goes to a small private school and I was talking to his, the headmaster a couple of weeks ago, or actually about a month and a half ago when this was kind of starting. And I said, do you realize that you have the opportunity to really just run your schedule as you, as you run it? And you know, his teachers at that point weren't necessarily prepared for it. But again, just like you said, a week ago, he was on with his iPad, with his teacher, doing some math homework, sharing his screen, showing his, his work, and they were able to work through that problem without any problem. And you know what that brings up, Jeff, is you've, what I'm also seeing, though, are those enterprises that were kind of unprepared for this, that, that had never imagined work from home. And in fact, I think you see this most in enterprises that assume that there's such a compliance and security and privacy burden, think like a financial institution, where they yes. don't want people working from home because they don't want data to leave their, their four walls. I think those companies are now having to rethink that pretty pretty significantly. And I think it'll have an impact well beyond the current crisis to where the idea that physical location is how you secure information and ensure privacy, I think that idea is going to largely be gone after this. And we're going to find other technology approaches to privacy and security. Yeah, and think of all the products that are going to stem from that that'll be built in the cloud and running with containers and serverless. Now it's time for the Tolga prediction. What's the one thing you think from a tech impact perspective? You sort of just alluded to it, but 
what's going to be different? We we all go back to you know being able to go out to a restaurant and have a meal without you know, having to lift a face mask, maybe. But what what tech impact are you going to see in society when when we look back at this six months later? Yeah, I think it's going to be primarily driven from this idea that offices no longer are the place where business is conducted. That it, offices are a great place to collaborate, and I think obviously they will they will stick around. But I actually think we'll see a really big emergence of work from home because people have now gotten comfortable with it and companies have now had to take the steps to enable it. And I think it's going to be here to stay. So I think we're going to see a more broad adoption of flexible work location kind of policies. Yeah. So where it was a, I'll, I don't want to call it a necessary evil. You know, that at first they wanted to, companies wanted to, you know, hire that person who wouldn't move. But now they've seen, and just like I've seen with, with cloud adoption, you talk about that first hello world type of a thing. And then a company's going to launch their first application. It's definitely not going to be, you know, something that the company's financials ride on. It's going to be a test thing, maybe a calendar app. And they're going to realize the world didn't end because they put that thing out in the cloud and more and more they will adopt it. Well, now we've all gone home and, and business is not just continuing. It's from our perspective, it's thriving. Uh, we, we work in a great industry for that. But, but we've, we've gone past that point of, well, let's just try it and see what happens. Well, I can't see your face, so that must mean you're not necessarily getting everything done you're supposed to. But we're seeing an incredible amount of productivity in our own business, continuing to go, uh, even in this world where, where not everybody's has been comfortable with it in the past. Yeah, that begs to, you know, Jeff, the societal impact, right? I think actually people are working harder when they work from home because you kind of just get out of bed and you're working. And then, and then before you know it, it's like, it's past dinner time. And so I do think as work from home becomes the norm, um, or at least becomes more widely accepted, people will have to start figuring out how to redevelop that kind of work-life balance that I think is lost in work from home. Super true. And what will it do to HR departments inside of companies when, when you know, somebody is going and looking for, uh, you know, needs a new employee inside of the organization? It is going to be so much easier for us to hire anywhere in the world and know that we have the wherewithal and the infrastructure to be able to, and the trust to be able to hire somebody anywhere based on talent, not necessarily on location. Yep. And I think that sums up the sort of impact really well. Like, like workforce management is going to just look different. 100%. Tolga, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking some time here. Any any closing thoughts, parting shots you want to you want to take here? <laughs> you know, every time I get a chance, I just like to remind people adopt the cloud in this cloud native way. It won't be that much more work than the lift and shift way, and you will be thankful for it. You know, very quickly after you do it. So, uh, my advice to everybody is make sure you take a look at a cloud native adoption of the cloud. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Tolga. I appreciate your time today. Tolga, of course, leads our AWS teams uh, and delivery over here at Rackspace as a continuation of what they did coming in with Anika. We're great, very glad to have you. My name is Jeff Deverter, CTO here at Rackspace, and, uh, and you've been listening to Cloud Talk. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. Well, that was an incredible conversation. I'm so glad that Tolga and the team from Anika are now a part of Rackspace. And I can guarantee you that you'll be hearing a lot more from Tolga on this podcast. Now, stick around just a little bit more. You'll get a sneak peek in what you have to look forward to in our next episode. But first, a huge shout out to the team who make Rackspace Solve a reality for us. This podcast is just one of the types of content that you'll find on the site. 
all dedicated to bringing you timely, technology-focused information to help provide insights into your path forward. Head on over to solve.rackspace.com. That's S-O-L-V-E rackspace.com, where you'll discover perspectives from industry experts around digital transformation, trends, innovation, and operations. There's uh, so much new content there every week, so go check it out. Now, let's hear what we have in store for our next episode. One thing, message I always kind of pushed out there is this is a nice, soft rollout of our business continuity testing right now. If you're going to push the button on business continuity, this is the way you want to do it because you have the ability to still access the office. You still have the ability to do things if you needed to, to get back in the office in a, a critical situation. That's next time on Cloud Talk.